Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Plants have an important role to play in sustaining life on our planet, in more ways than you might think. Now, plants we know do things like produce air for us to breathe, but that's not all they do. Intricately linked to not only harvesting energy from the sun, not just in the terms of photosynthesis, but other ways too. And they release all kinds of compounds into the air, which can have lots of things, not just fresh scents, but also perhaps helping clouds to form. Humanity likes to think of itself as being the masters of the planet Earth, able to control and shape continents, create incredibly large machines, make it even to other planets. And this is all very much true. But when you consider what has happened in the Earth here, we are but a mere blip in the history of this wonderful planet. And our I'm at the top of the table, so to speak, of this planet is relatively short. But there's things that have been here for quite a while. Now, they're not the oldest things on our planet. There's stuff that predates them, fungi, bacteria, algae, you name it. But plants, even though they're relatively recent on a geological setting, have been around much longer than animals and humans, of course. And of course, these plants are part of an intricate system. Now, trees, in many sense, like in a forest, are an incredible machine. And if you imagine all of the plant life across the planet Earth, of all its various forms, shapes, and sizes, this machine is working together to perform a pretty incredible feat. Uh, Well, if you think about what they do, more or less, they convert carbon dioxide in the atmosphere into oxygen. That is incredibly amazing because it enables life on this planet, at least in the way that we know it. That's great, but leave that aside for a second. Enabling these plants to do this conversion, of course, requires photosynthesis, which needs light, but the plants also need water. And what plants do is draw water up from the soil, through their roots, up into themselves, out to their extremities, through the system of the plant. Now, on a small flower, this distance of this pumping and water extraction from soil upwards isn't that large. But Imagine a large tree or a forest. The amount of water pumped out of the soil by these trees and plants is incredible. It is a huge transfer of coldness, of water, of moisture out of the soil and the ground into the extremities of a plant. This is happening every day. It's a huge machine that's running far more efficiently than all of our water treatment plants and water distribution networks are scattered across the planet. Scientists in University of California, Santa Barbara, have dived into this exact topic, published in the Journal of Geophysical Research, trying to understand just how much water that plants are handling every day and how much energy is actually needed to do this incredible process. Now, when you do the mathematics, about every day it's one quadrillion gallons of water. Apologies for the imperial units there. And these are huge volumes of water uh, accomplished from this plants really mostly only powered by sunlight now that's a lot of energy so how much of it actually is being converted and what is it used if you do the calculation in depth as is done in this paper it's roughly equivalent to globally the equivalent of all of humanity's hydropower consumption as well so all the plants are working as just as much energy production as all of the large dams and hydropower systems scattered across the planet and it takes a lot of power to lift water and this energy that the plants are using is being harnessed from the environments around them 
And as you know, photosynthesis itself requires carbon dioxide, light, and water, CO2, that's available in the air. So as long as the plant's leaves and extremities are exposed to air, then you've got that available to you. Likewise with light, as long as you're in sunlight or various degrees of it, then you have that ingredient. But the water, the water's a bit different. The water needs to be drawn up through the vascular system. Tubes called the xylem breathe the water from the roots to the leaves, and other tubes called the phloem move the sugar produced in the leaves down across the rest of the plant. That way, the food is produced up in the leaves and then spread out across the plant. Now, the pretty thing is, the way that plants, vascular plants at least, evolved xylem is what enabled trees in the first place to exist. We have a vascular system, but our vascular system is closed. It's a closed circulatory system with a heart that pressurizes and beats and pumps blood through all of our arteries and then uses capillaries and veins to deliver oxygen nutrients throughout our bodies. This is a really cool mechanism, but it costs a lot of energy because we need to be keeping our hearts beating. And that uses a lot of metabolic energy to just keep it going. If your heart stops, then, well, you die. And that's because your body relies on blood flowing through it in order for all of its organs to function. Now, if you think about it, we have a closed pressurized vascular system. But plants don't. They could have evolved a pumping-like mechanism, but they didn't. And that has a huge advantage for them. It saves a lot of energy. Plant circulation systems, in contrast to ours or animals, are passive and open. This means they're not pressurized. Now, when sunlight evaporates water, which is escaping through the pores and the leaves, this actually creates a negative pressure in the system and pulls up the water from underneath it. And scientists call this transpiration, but this transpiration process is merely another way of actually harvesting energy from the sun. It's not the energy used to create photosynthesis. It's more around the evaporation of water specifically. This absence of water then creates negative pressure, which draws out more water, which then in turn gets heated and evaporated again. And this process is happening in the leaves alongside, of course, of photosynthesis. But it's just another example of why plants need light. This transpiration process actually creates the pressure that is needed for the plants to draw the water up from the soil up through the plant's vascular system to the leaves and the extremities. Now, the researchers were diving through some old papers and studies trying to settle an argument that they were having about just how much energy the plants were using. And when they did investigate this, over many, many years, they looked through global databases of plant conductance, and they looked at models of sap ascent to see how much pressure was able to actually be used to draw sap upwards. And from that, they could see just how much energy these plants are devoting to just everyday pumping water. And in total, they found that forests on Earth consume around 9.4 petawatt hours of energy per year. That's, as I said before, roughly equivalent to global hydropower production. Now, when you compare it to the amount of energy that plants use for photosynthesis, this is much less. 14% of the energy used for this drawing water process of that what is required for photosynthesis. So plants need way more energy for photosynthesis than for just creating this evaporation process. But it's still a reasonable chunk of energy that plants benefit from. The good news for them is that they don't have to do anything really to achieve this benefit. 
by exposing their pores and getting the water evaporated, it creates the pressure needed to do this draw-through process. It's almost like free energy that passes onto then animals and fungi that then consume the plants and animals that consume those animals and so on and so on. So the plants are harvesting energy from the sun and then using that to power themselves and feed themselves and make them juicier and tastier and more alive. And another way to think about it is that sun's energy is harnessed by the plant. That energy is then captured and stored in the plant, then eaten by a creature and then becomes part of the ecosystem. So when we think about the purpose and power of sunlight, it's not just in a plant that it does photosynthesis. It also powers their vascular system. It's also a way of storing and capturing energy inside our plants and our biomass that then goes and contributes to the overall energy of, well, the entire ecosystem as a whole. And of course, one thing to remember is not all plants behave exactly the same. Different plant species uh, will have to do a lot more to pump their water than others. Like a juniper tree that is really drought adapted might have a lot of resistance to overcome and it's water pumping. While another plant like a cottonwood, you know, it can really easily draw water out of its environment. And this just depends on what environment this plant is designed or evolved to inhabit and work best in. So the actual estimate of how much energy is used by all plants needs a lot more refining. It could be as high as 140 petawatt hours per year. And that is, you know, a pretty wide overshoot of the current estimate between 7.4 and 15.4 petawatt hours. Now, it just depends on how well we understand the way in which plants use this transpiration process to draw water through. But just leaving that aside for a second, it's amazing to think about the work that plants have done here to power their vascular system without actually requiring any active effort at all. They're relying on evaporation and heating processes, harnessing sunlight in just another way. It shows how perfectly plants have evolved to really make the most of one resource, in this case, sunlight, and how we all benefit from it, animals and humans as well, not just in the air that we breathe and the food that we consume, but in the amazing work that they do to contribute to the water cycle as well. There's some great work published in the Journal of Geophysical Research with authors Quentin, Anderegg, Koenigs and Trugman just how much work plants are doing, aside from photosynthesis, to play an active part of our global water cycle. So we talked about plants having an incredibly important role in our not only ecosystems, our food web, but also in producing breathable air for us, and more importantly, being a part of the water cycle. But there's another thing that plants do, which is a pretty incredible and important part, though often overlooked amongst all of the great other achievements of plants. And that's what researchers from the Max Planck Institute in Germany have been publishing and investigating and now just published in the journal Nature. Now, lead author on this paper was Joseph Byron, along with Kruisweiser, Purser, Varharen, Lard, and Meredith. Now, what they were investigating is the way in which plants release certain volatile organic compounds and how these little molecules can interact with our atmosphere. Now, when we talk about these little droplets or, or volatile organic compounds, it's easy to think about this just as some weird esoteric chemistry thing. But it's not. It's something that you probably would be familiar with. 
For example, one of these montebrunines that are released by plants are the pine fresh scent that you've probably smelled if you've ever been around any pine trees. And worldwide plant emit huge tons of these types of montebrunines added to our atmosphere all the time. These organic compound molecules are what give plants their fragrance, and that's really cool, but they also do other things as well. These fragrance molecules are incredibly reactive. They can form aerosol particles that can then bundle up and grow into nuclei, which can form the basis of cloud droplets. So if you think about it, these natural emissions not only provide some pretty great smells, they change the composition of our atmosphere and can also dynamically change formation of things in our atmosphere, like precipitation. Now, all of this is to say that the presence of these gases, these multiparines released from these plants, can mess with climate models. But they can also tell us some pretty interesting things about what is happening in the plants as well, because these are essentially chemical telltale signals released by the plants. Now, these are good for having a nice fresh pine scent, but they can also tell us often about the health of the plant based on what gets released along with these actual volatile organic compounds. Montebrunes can often contain two mimic image forms, what this means is there could be an alpha, a positively charged one, and an alpha, a negatively charged one. Now, this is just basically the chemical formation of these particular compounds. And they can release both forms at once, or they could release more in different ratios. They can, it happens normally directly after biosynthesis, or maybe from storage pools of these compounds in the leaves. Now, because of these two different forms of the compounds, even though they basically have identical physical and chemical properties, they can contribute different things. And this is what researchers were trying to look at to see if they would tell us anything about the actual life stage or cycle or maybe stresses on the plants. That's what the researchers from the Max Planck Institute were investigating in conjunction with, of course, University of Freiburg, University of Arizona, all using the Biosphere 2 complex in Arizona. Now, Biosphere 2 was designed to create self-sustaining ecosystems which could be intricately manipulated and studied. And that's really important if you're trying to run a controlled experiment. And so what the scientists did in this case was for three months, put the forest in this one of these biospheres under moderate and then severe drought stress. What they could then do is watch plants and see what they were emitted, and measure all of this with grass chromatographs, mass spectrometers, and other analysis tools to try and measure the emissions of captured things like the alpha-pinene, the camaphene, laminine, terrapene, all isoprene, all these different other emitted volatile organic compounds that are coming from the plants. And you can track the isotope versions of the CO2 that gets released from them. And what you can look at in particular is what they call heavy carbon dioxide, 13CO2. Instead of a regular 12 carbon, it's a 13 carbon, so hence 13CO2. And because they're doing such a detailed study and taking really intricate measurements of the gases emitted by the plants, they can see which of the types of isotopes are being released by the plants, which compounds were being made and which ones were not being made and at what times. And what they saw is that these, these two mirror versions of these volatile organic compounds, the alpha positive and alpha negatives, physically and chemically are very, very similar, but when it comes to what the isotopic configuration was, there was a difference. And what that 
saw happening was that the, in this tropical rainforest that they were studying, the negative alpha-ponene was released directly after the photosynthesis, while the mirror one, the positive, came only later from the storage pools. And they found then, as the drought progressed in this simulated experiment, not only were more monotoprenes released, but also the maximum emissions shifted in terms of when the emissions occurred to later in the afternoon. And the plants then released, because they're doing it later in the afternoon, they're releasing more, not from the exact immediate aftermath of the photosynthesis, but actually from the storage pools. And this is pretty interesting because what they're trying to see here is that, well, if they're releasing more and more of these monotoprenes, then they're hopeful, the plants at least, that they could perhaps influence the formation of precipitation because it increases the likelihood that clouds will form over the, pro over the forest. As I mentioned before, these volatile organic compounds can help with cloud formation, droplet formation. And this is pretty cool because the plants are basically signaling, you know, it's hot, please rain, and releasing these compounds into the air to try and induce that to occur. And releasing more of the compounds, especially in the afternoon, is the plant's attempt to try and generate more of this to, to actually create rainfall. The problem is, the warmer it gets during the day, the more vertical mixing of air increases. Now, if you release later in the day when it is warmer, there's more hot air to lift up those compounds higher and higher into the air. The higher those compounds get, the greater the chance they can become aerosol particles and thus become seeds for cloud condensation nuclei. This is a pretty amazing thing to think about. Plants signaling and requesting more rain from the clouds and releasing these stored chemical compounds inside their leaves and their storage pools in them to try and generate or seed clouds at the right time. It's a pretty amazing thing to think about the way in which the smell and the fragrances and the volatile compounds from the plants can actually be involved in the formation of precipitation and the way the plants can make decisions about when to best release them to maximize the chance of actually forming rain, especially as droughts progress. When it became hotter and the drought became severe, it sh the plants shifted when they released these compounds and how and where they released them from with the aim of trying to actually induce precipitation. This is some pretty amazing research published in the journal Nature by research from the Max Planck Institute of Chemistry. But it shows the influence that plants can have on the ecosystem and the environment around them and the role that they have in formation of precipitation, or at least trying to influence it. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From the sense of plants helping encourage raindrops to fall and how that changes in times of drought and way in which plants manage to evaporate water and harness energy from the sun to run their vascular system. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.